0: So we've been here together now for, I guess, a little over a day, engaging in this practice of being mindful, being present, connecting with our experience. and It sometimes seems like almost that's a rather simple description of something that's much more Shall we say challenging than it appears from its description? We could imagine if we would describe to someone that, oh, you know, in meditation we're just invited to sit down and pay attention to our breath and, you know, it's a reasonably soft, comfortable cushion to sit on, and we just sit there for a little while doing that. That sounds like a pretty sort of, you know, easy sort of thing to be doing. Then they send us out to go for a little walk back and forth, you know, really an amble, we could hardly call it a walk. You know, and gosh, by the time it was half past seven I arrived in the meditation, all we'd say to our friend and I was exhausted and they'd wonder, you know, how did he manage to get tired doing that? How did he manage to find that difficult or challenging? It you know, someone was saying in the group today a little bit like it's sort of it's almost like too good to be true to have nothing to do. Is it allowed? Is it okay? And well of course it is allowed, that's why we're doing it. It's also the case that it's not quite as straightforward as it might seem from a surface description, from a simple description of what we're doing. And there are lots of ways we could understand or reflect on how that comes to be the case. It's interesting in the context of, uh, you know, when the retreat is entitled A Path of Peace and Happiness, we think, well, that sounds great, I'd like to do that. Yes, uh, peace, happiness, I'll take a, a double helping. You know, um, and yet it's not always what we immediately experience when we engage in this practice. And we might sort of wonder if we, you know, if we're experiencing sort of sore knees and busy heads and drowsiness and you know incessant thinking, all of this that can go on at times for us. You know, whether we should be reporting guy house to the you know the the Trades Descriptions Act or whatever it is. You know, it's not quite like described in the advertisement. And so I think it's useful to reflect on what's going on that makes this so, that makes this the case. And one way we can understand what we're doing here and what we're engaged in in the process of meditation and we could say in the uh, process of spiritual exploration, we're going against the stream. And this is the, the theme I'd like to reflect on this evening, going against the stream. We could understand spiritual practice as being an expression of this. One of the things that we encounter that stands out, I think, very clearly to each of us as we engage in meditation practice in this form here together, is that there's a a very powerful momentum There's a very powerful current that we can experience ourselves as swept along by, sometimes swept up in. At times it can feel that we're being turned and tumbled and uh, struggling to come up for air. At other times it might feel like it's a, a little smoother. But nonetheless there's a way in which we can notice or sense ourselves somehow being carried, pulled by a certain momentum by a certain force or, we could say, like gravitational pull in life that doesn't seem to us to really be that wholesome or really deeply serving us, although we might not necessarily recognize that at first. And this pull, this current, this way in which we are, Drawn along is essentially what we could describe or understand as the pull of materialism, as an orientation in our life that is basically looking for something, something other, something else, and that is founded on an unquestioned and often unexamined and possibly not even noticed assumption that there's some condition or circumstance that when we find it, when we inhabit it, we will have arrived at the place of peace, at the place of happiness, and that dwelling therein forevermore, we will be content and at ease. And the, that process of materialism, which, which takes three primary expressions, is the process of looking for the fulfillment of that or to, to somehow to find that particular circumstance or condition that will do it for me, that will finally bring to an end the struggles, the dissatisfaction, the conflict, the pain, the confusion, and allow me to just kick back and relax in sort of some blissful arrival of homecoming and ease and joy and fun. And the three levels that we can see or reflect upon how this, or three ways in which this pull, this current, expresses itself are to do with the process of trying to gain at a very surface, conventional level, possessions, have things, get things that are going to make us happy. And you know, the amount of time and energy and money that's devoted to convincing us that if we just get the right thing, the best thing, the new thing, the latest thing, wherever it be, sort of electronic equipment, cars, houses, clothes, relationships, whether we get the right one, the best one, the new one, when we get it, Then we'll be happy. Then we'll be, ah, great. And I can't imagine that any of you would be here over this weekend if you really believed that that was so, because there really isn't a lot of that on offer here. It would be a pretty unsuccessful shopping trip, wouldn't it, coming to Guy House? And yet that is something which at times many people and maybe at times ourselves can feel somewhat enthralled too in the world. As we start to see the really the inability of material things to give us ultimate satisfaction or happiness. Without negating or denying their value and their place, and you know, we need clothes, we need food, we need somewhere to live, and it's really of course important to cultivate wholesome relationships and connections and many things that could be truly nourishing and beneficial for us. So we can but starting to see that maybe this that we can't kind of make our happiness depend on something that's in a way outside of ourselves, not in our controls. We start to see these things aren't. The attention, and this is often the the movement in coming into spiritual exploration and practice, is towards then looking for the inner experience starting to see that we can start to we can cultivate we can develop we can support the wholesome the beautiful the lovely the nourishing qualities and capacities of heart and mind such as peace such as joy such as ease and these are equal, these are also important and precious for us but what starts to happen easily is we, we start to relate to them with that kind of materialistic attitude. We've, we get again caught or pulled in the sense of somehow if I can just get the right experience. And once I've got the right experience, if I can keep that experience or get it back again and again and again, then that somehow seems to be promising us the satisfaction, the peace, the the release from the struggle and the momentum and the pull that we so deeply yearn for, that we long for. And in meditation practice, it's really easy to start to imagine that we're here to be getting some kind of spiritual experience, some kind of wow thing. Now, wow, or lovely, or beautiful, powerful, sometimes mysterious experiences can come, and they can be precious and beautiful and we can learn a lot from them. There can be healing that comes through them. There's no harm in that at all. But when we set up an idea or an ideal of what experience we're supposed to be having, whatever that is, and we use it to compare with the experience that we're actually having having, and say, well, what's, happening, what's actually happening isn't really of value, isn't of significance, isn't what should be then we're falling into the same trap. And a lot of the struggle that happens in meditation, when it seems like the description sounds quite straightforward, not that difficult, and the experience at times can feel very difficult, it's because we're putting pressure on what's happening. We've got some idea that it's supposed to look a certain way. You know, I'm supposed to be... Oh, I've been doing this a whole day. Surely my mind should be calm and quiet. All those pesky, annoying thoughts should have gone to sleep by now, surely. All those sort of scary or unsettling emotions, well, shouldn't they have all calmed down into some kind of warm, soft, glowing light? Wouldn't that be what would have happened? I've been doing this all day, after all. And there's a way in which, again, that looking for something to do it for me. As if somehow a certain experience would be the resolution of our life, would be the completion or the validation or the the uh, fulfilment of our life, but it doesn't really work that way. Experiences come and go; they move, they change, they flow. When they're lovely or delightful, of course, we can enjoy them. When they're challenging or difficult, we need to learn to to meet them skillfully. But we can't really make our home in them. Because they're changing. They're coming into shape and then transforming into something new, moment after moment. And underlying this process of trying to get experience is a, and have certain experiences that maybe would make us feel okay or good or feel like it would somehow satisfy us. There's a deeper, and perhaps we could say the deepest level of materialism that's going on, of trying to get something or make something be a certain way. And it's to do with the process of how we're engaged often, not very consciously, but very, very... Compellingly engaged in trying to become someone particular that would fulfill some idea or some model or some image that we have of how we should be or who we would like to be or how we would experience ourselves if we were somehow. Good, or right, or perfect, or spiritual. And it's quite understandable, it's quite natural that this would happen. And yet it creates again this, this pull, this pressure upon us in which we can be constantly looking at our experience and using it to form some conclusion about ourselves in which the hope is that I can somehow create or manufacture the experience which will allow me to feel okay about myself, to become someone who I like, who I think is um, wholesome or of value, or who other people will like or believe to be wholesome or good or of value. We're, we're, we're looking for the experience that will somehow confirm or validate that And at the same time, we're looking because we're afraid that our experience is going to confirm quite the opposite. That actually, it turns out it's true. I really am no good. I really am hopeless. I really can't do anything, and I never will be able to do anything of significance. So easily we come to conclusions about ourselves, And we're caught in this desperate attempt to somehow create a sense of me that fulfills our hopes, our aspirations, our expectations, our needs. And yet it doesn't seem that we come to that. It doesn't seem that that happens for us in our life and it doesn't really happen in meditation either. There's an ongoingness to that process that we really need to stop and look at to see what's happening here, what's going on. As there's, there's this uh, the sense of trying to somehow locate ourselves in the process, and this hope for a positive reflection, and the fear of its opposite. And so often, what goes on, and it's it's actually really tragic. It's it's quite Painful actually to see and to hear again and again from from people such as ourselves, how we how we can be so hard on, so harsh on ourselves, towards ourselves, in the way we form conclusions, in that pull to somehow try and become someone and feel, however, that we've fallen short. And there's this, you know, kind of classic thing that goes on, reported regularly. Where someone's sitting in meditation in the hall and we're all here together. And, you know, trying to be mindful and it just doesn't seem to be happening. There's tiredness and there's achiness and there's discomfort and there's busyness and all that going on. And it's sort of like at some point, oh, I can't do this, it's hopeless, I'm no good. The person just gives up, looks around and everybody else is sitting up really straight. Everyone else looks really calm. It's like really peaceful, really still. It's like, wow, they can all do it. Everybody else. It's like there's this room and there's 50 Buddhas to be, all on the, you know, just on the brink of full, complete awakening. And then me, one overcooked vegetable, just sitting here, you know, slumping on my cushions. (laughs) And we believe that that's really what's happening. And of course in that situation what very soon happens is the person gives, it's hopeless, why bother? <sighs> Closes their eyes and you know, maybe moments later that person sitting next to them opens their eyes and looks at them and thinks, wow, they're really still, they're really peaceful, they look so relaxed. They must be really getting it. And this way in which we tell stories about ourselves and others. It's part of this process of somehow attempting to locate ourselves in an identity that we could feel at ease in. And yet, so often the result of that process is quite the opposite. We don't come to a place of ease. We don't come to a place of well-being. So there's this stream, this pull, this it seems compelling urge to need to, you know, to get or to gain experiences or possessions, to somehow become someone. And ultimately really those materialistic urges towards gaining possessions or gaining experiences are in the service of that deeper attempt to somehow establish ourselves as a someone that we feel we can be happy as or will be loved as or appreciated as or not attacked as so many different things can come into that urge and it keeps us busy it keeps us going so when we come into meditation practice and we're given the invitation to just you know pay attention connect be with our breath one of the things it's it's you know it's one thing to do that for 20 minutes at home and it's just 20 minutes like great i'll just put everything away one thing we really see, and many people comment on, it's different when we have to do it all day. And the, the momentum, the power of the mind stream shows itself more clearly. In meditation we're being asked to stand steady, to stand firm in the face of that stream of conditioned activity, conditioned reactivity. As it mostly is. Seeing the, the way in which we get distracted. How so many other things seem more interesting than my breath. It's just remarkable, isn't it? How many stories, how many songs, how many, you know, bits of random information suddenly seem so interesting comparing to my breathing. Have you noticed that at all? How, you know, I recently downloaded a track that I used to listen to when I was a teenager. I just remembered it and thought, oh, I'll I'll get that one. And it was great. I loved hearing it. And it suddenly re-embedded itself in my mind, and it goes, I think, why did I put that back in there? At the time, I enjoyed it. There's nothing wrong with it being there, to be honest, but uh, it's like seeing how we, we get pulled. We look for distraction, looking for entertainment so much. And the breathing isn't that entertaining, it seems or feeling our foot touch the ground at first, it doesn't seem that entertaining. It's like we're used to being entertained. And we want entertainment. Have you noticed yourself reading the labels on the tea bags? (laughs) Or examining the notice board for the third time in 15 minutes? In case the schedule's been changed and they didn't tell us? You know you see how we get hungry, we're looking, looking, looking this, this is a kind of stream, a pull in the mind, distraction, fixation, how we how we hook on to certain things, we're sort of experiences or feelings that arise in us or stories that we tell about ourselves, and mostly they're about ourselves or about others sometimes and we kind of kind of get locked into these stories and conclusions and repeating and replaying and he did and she did and i did and they did and we shouldn't have or they shouldn't have or they should have or i should have no 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 and it's painful we feel ourselves caught in it caught in it or well, the fragmentation that happens when we we're, we're pulled this way and that and there's lots of different things going on And there's my body and my mind and my knees aching and my head's fuzzy and then suddenly I'm thinking about something I really want or something I really don't like. And there can be lots going on at times. That activity is something that we're here to meet. We don't need to judge or reject that experience or ourselves for the fact that it's arising. But we do need to address how we meet it, to look and see that we can we can learn to connect with what's happening without taking the content of it or the particularity of what it is that's happening as having too much importance or significance for us. Of course we can learn from, and we do learn from things that go on, from experiences that happen at times. And that's fine, that's part of it. But... Equally and sometimes more importantly is the process of learning just what it means to connect. Just what it means to trust in what is here and in our capacity to meet the experience as it is. To connect again and again and again with it. We don't see how, and we don't know how powerful the currents that can dominate and drive our life are. Until we start to stand steady and firm in the face of them. And then we start to feel, and sometimes it can feel incredibly powerful, the way we feel pulled by it. And even if we feel somewhat swept away at times by it, the fact that we've chosen to face it directly and feel its pull is already a very powerful step to have taken in one's life. And to develop more and more the capacity to to reorient ourselves in that way, to not just be carried by the stream of reactivity in the mind. We start to look at, we start to examine and get to know what is it that grabs us, what is it that hooks us, how are we pulled, how are we moved. We need to understand this or else it happens to us and we're not quite sure why it's happening or what's happening. So part of what happens here is that we start to notice, oh, this is what happens. This is how it goes. This is where my button gets pushed or where my vulnerability gets triggered. We start to see some of those things. At a general level, it's quite universal. We, we, we encounter greed, a sense of wanting, of, of give me, I must have, I must get, I want to keep, experience in different ways and forms we encounter fear the sense of no i don't want to have that experience i don't like it it's got to go away and so often what happens when we encounter the difficult it's not so much the difficulty of the experience that's a struggle for us whether it be a painful knee or a busy mind or a or an ache in our heart it's it's more the sense of how we're afraid that if if we don't somehow fight against it we'll be overwhelmed by it or it'll somehow become permanent and define who we are, or our life. Like, I'll be someone who, this is my life, just, you know, pain in my knee forever. Or aching in my heart forever. Or busyness, fuzziness in my mind forever. So we we resist the experience because somehow we're afraid of being defined by it. And at the same time we're believing that we are defined by it. When in truth, and understood more deeply, we are not defined by our experience, by what happens in and what moves through heart, mind and body. But this is something that isn't necessarily always clear or understood in the way we live. So it's useful to see how we get into conflict with life. How we get into a struggle with life. How we tend to see and believe that the way things are is somehow the problem. And if we could just change it, things would be okay. When we can't get the things that we want and we can't get rid of the things we don't want, what tends to happen is we start to get frustrated or angry. And this is a condition, and experience in which there's a deep discontent and a lot of pain. And there's a story about this that I'd like to share, which I think sheds a little light on how it happens. find it rather useful. It's actually a true story, a transcript of, a, um, of a, a radio conversation between a US naval ship and the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland. And um, it goes like this. It was released by the um, Canadian authorities. And it presents it as if it actually happened, which I assume it probably did, but you can judge for yourself. Um, And it starts with a communication from the American ship that says, please divert your course 15 degrees the north to avoid a collision. And the uh, Canadians respond, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. Just sound familiar? The American response, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. The Canadians, no. I say again, you divert your course. And we can see in the the dialogue, maybe I don't need to, it's pretty obvious, but the the way in which we, we kind of just react, saying, get out of my way. The response, and this is in capital letters, so I guess in that form of communication it's the equivalent of shouting. And it says from the Americans, this is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States, Atlantic Fleet. You get the sense of something puffing up. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course 15 degrees north. That's one5 degrees north. Or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. Canadians respond. "This is a lighthouse. <laughs> your call. It's kind of amusing, really. It's a story. Maybe it actually happened. But certainly it happens regularly enough in our inner experience, doesn't it? We see something that appears to be in the way, we say, get out of the way. And if it doesn't get out of the way, we start to fight, struggle, react. Maybe we get angry with the experience, or maybe we get angry with ourselves so easily and often. And yet, from the story, it's pretty clear that there's no way the lighthouse is getting out of the way life is not going to be other than as it is and true peace true happiness is not found by the manipulation of experience or by the control of experience but through understanding the nature of experience itself and transforming our way of relating to and meeting experience in line with that understanding. So, we're asked in practice to be interested in this whole process as we're cultivating a certain degree of steadiness, of focus, of collectedness. And we are in this process of coming back again and again and again, even though at times it might not feel like it. It's really very hard to assess what's happening for you in this practice because the the normal benchmarks we're used to relating to have changed here. And everything's much quieter, much softer, much less sort of Rushed than we used to. And so we may in fact be coming much quieter. Much calmer, much stiller than we even realise. But as we do so, we become very aware of the degree to which we're not calm. To which we're not quiet. To which we are caught in reactivity. We feel that very keenly. And yet not to draw any conclusions from that. To leave open that that sense of what's the outcome or what what is coming from this process or in this journey. And whether we're a beginner here doing this the first time or whether we've done many retreats we still do not know and cannot know what will be the outcome of this. And yet the tendency for us is very much to kind of want to slot into the familiar into the comfortable into the known and going against the stream as a practice of of liberating ourselves liberating our hearts and our minds and ultimately liberating this world from the power of conditioned reactivity of the from the power of of greed of fear of hatred of delusion this is something that's it's a worthy and noble and challenging undertaking. But one that we have the capacity, we have all that we need to be able to engage in this. The remarkable ability we have to be conscious of what's going on, to start to see and to notice, ah, oh, oh, that's what's happening. Huh? Okay, that makes sense. Not trying to figure it out all the time, but just by watching we sometimes see and we notice. And then we can say... Okay, maybe, maybe I don't need to follow the pattern all the time. What happens is that when we repeat a certain behavior or a certain pattern, it sort of like starts to make a groove in the mind. And we get caught in the track. And it becomes easier and easier to repeat it and harder and harder to step out of it. And yet when we notice that we're caught in that kind of a track. There's something also profoundly limiting about it. Profoundly unsatisfying about being caught in that. And there are many different things in which we can experience or explore this particular dynamic. We might notice that it's our a tendency always to try really hard. To really push yourself, to really go for it. It's like, mm, you know, meditate, breathe, mindful, now... And um, (coughs) if we notice that's our tendency, we're probably really good at that. We've probably learned how to do it really well. And in some things in our life, it's probably served us, which is fine and great. There's times we need to really be able to give ourselves or give that full 110% effort. But if we're stuck in that pattern, if we can only ever operate that way, it's really painful. And there's often a lot of judgment and harshness driving it. So being able to say, okay, can I soften? Can I relax? Can I just give myself some space here? We might, of course, have the opposite tendency. We might be, ah, I'm not going to make an effort. Come on. Ah. You know, I noticed my breath at bat, you know, sometime after 10 o'clock this morning. That was probably good enough. You know, twice in one day. Why push it? Um, you know, I can relax and that's the way to go. We can see that that might be our tendency. And of course, relaxation is good. Not putting ourselves under too much pressure is useful. And yet sometimes we really need to say, no. What does it take to really bring myself up to the mark? To say, I'm going to give myself to this wholeheartedly. And to see that there might be some fear of failure or the fear of sort of having to make an effort that's stopping us really following our heart's movement in a meditation or in our life. So making a choice in that way. I mean, one thing that I spent quite a period of time working with very consciously that kind of just came to mind as I was coming back, coming into the hall this evening was when some, I think it was a few years ago now, I noticed that I was always really hesitant to ask for things. And it seemed actually it was quite good. I was sort of independent and not sort of needy and all sorts of wholesome things I could ascribe to that. But I noticed that I was a little sort of, always just a little tentative even to ask someone to pass me the salt. You know, like, could you please pass me the salt? You know, like, like that was a bit much to ask. And I realised there was something going on in myself around that. So I thought, OK, make a practice of asking for things. Like something in me is a little anxious there. So it's nothing to be afraid of. I'm not going to get into trouble. Try it and see. And it's really interesting to do something like that as a practice, to just go against the pattern. And so I noticed when I sat down and I thought, oh, yeah, I'm really fine with a cushion to put my notes on, but actually a bench would be a little bit better, and there's a free one there. So this little thing goes, oh, you don't have to do that, you don't need it, don't cause any trouble, da-da-da-da-da. It's like, no, this is your practice. Ask for the bench. You know, okay. It wasn't quite like I was, you know. But it's like, oh, there's something, and then there's a freedom in that. It's like, oh, wow, look. It's that straightforward. And hopefully, a kind person who said, sure, I mean, they could have said, no, get it yourself, which, you know, would be a fair enough response. It's probably not that likely, since I'm ostensibly sitting at the front and supposedly in charge, so not really. Um, But just something about taking a little risk. And in that, there's suddenly a lightning, an opening, a freeing of the heart that comes in just small ways. And we have here really so many opportunities for that. To just step out of the box a little bit. And see what it's like outside of it. <laughs> but it's not always that easy for us to do that. It's not easy at all. In terms Of the stream that we are caught in or the familiarity that we seek to kind of align ourselves with. It's like there's something about just going with the current. You know, we hear a spiritual sort of, or sometimes pseudo-spiritual thing of going with the flow. Which, of course, can mean, and usefully, really going with the way things are. But other times it gets used to justify just going with our conditioning and allowing ourselves just to be carried along. There's a, there's a saying I encountered, I can't quite remember where, that goes something like, um, only dead fish always go with the tide. So sometimes, sure, we go with the flow, but other times we actually need to stand when we see that the flow is actually not taking us somewhere wholesome, when it's actually more the, the outflow of reactivity. And yet to do so involves stepping into the unknown. To let go of the busyness of our minds, much as we might wish to. And it's, you know, it's interesting how strongly there can be, I'd really like to get some peace from the busyness of my mind. But something in us obviously isn't convinced by that, because it's really keen on all this thinking. Have you noticed that? It wouldn't be happening if that wasn't the case. Because we get something from it. We get something from our distractedness, from our caught in the patterns of reactivity. And often it's a sense of a kind of comforting familiarity of the known, a certain pseudo or apparent security that in fact is no security at all because what's happening is what's familiar and predictable and known to us. And the the, the urge or the pull to stay within the familiar and the known is one of the most profoundly limiting tendencies that we can encounter in practice, and that we're asked to face and meet with with courage. I had a very, uh, for me, powerful. Experience with regard to the strength of this sense and urge of, for certainty. Uh, some years ago, I was teaching a retreat in um, in Australia, in a, in a small uh, small retreat centre in uh, New South Wales called Wat Buddha Dhamma in the in the the rainforest there, and. Um, Having arrived for the retreat to this place for the first time and not really knowing at all my way around, I was shown up to a little cootie, a little cabin, um, sort of 15 minutes walk from the main centre. And I, I had the afternoon free, so I thought I'd go for a, a run and just explore the territory. And after some time, I went. I, I was running for a while, and then it was, there was a lot of quite dense forest around, so I couldn't see very much. And I was kind of hoping for a nice view. Then I... I saw this, this hill, this rise up on the side near the path, and I thought, oh, it looks like there's a good view at the top of that. So I left the path, and I went up the hill. For about 10 minutes or so, maybe 15, I climbed to the, to the brow of this hill, and I couldn't see much, actually. There were still quite tall trees at the top. There wasn't any space. So I was a little disappointed. I thought, oh, well, so I head back down. I went back down, and as I was heading down the, the slope... At some point I noticed I'd been going for about 20 minutes, and I thought, oh, I must have missed the path. So I thought, oh, it must be just back up. So I went back up, I didn't find the path. I got to the top a little perplexed. I said, well, I know, it's just down there. I'm quite experienced in the outdoors, at least I think of myself as such. And, um, you know, I kind of paid attention to what I was doing, so I went back down the hill. I wasn't there. Went back up, down. I went, okay, go a bit further. Maybe you went long, further than you are. Half an hour, 45 minutes down. Didn't find it. All the way back up to the top again. Didn't find it. Started to get worried. It was starting to get dark. I was sure I knew where the path was. It was supposed to be. It was just down there. But I could not find it. And as it was getting dark and I was just wearing my running sort of singlet and shorts. It was um, summer in Australia. It's quite warm. I started to think, I'm going to be out here all night. I can't find the path. So I started sort of gathering some leaves and some fronds and things to, to lie down. I was a bit sort of it's a bit scary because um, it's Australia it's full of all these sort of you know creatures and New Zealand there's no poison, I come from New Zealand no poisonous creatures in New Zealand Australia it's full of them it's crawling with them apparently so it's kind of a bit anxiety provoking but I wasn't concerned about the spend, you know, I could spend a night outdoors that's alright, I can live with that, the retreat started the next day um, and I'll find the path in the morning I thought, it was getting dark and then the moon came out and it was a bit more light and I started reflecting on my situation I thought, you know I've been down to where I think the path is so many times and I can't find it there and I realised that the sense I had that I knew where the path was it was down there it was in that direction was wrong it was completely wrong because I'd examined that territory completely and absolutely and there was this moment this wave of like Existential existential terror just burst through my whole being as I was. I don't know where the path is. I don't know where it is. I've got no idea. I could have somehow got 180 degrees wrong in my orientation, and I'm looking even into the wrong valley. And the valley I'm supposed to be in is the other side of the hill. Because in that moment, that I didn't know. I didn't know anything, and it was terrifying. It was. I, I can feel, It's like searing, like lightning coming through the body. The intensity of that. And my mind just like, I'm going to die out here. They're not going to even know I'm gone until tomorrow evening when I don't turn up for the opening talk. And this whole, uh, just in a millisecond flash, that fear, realising I did not know where I was or where the path was. And then after that came through, it was like, okay, that's true. I don't know where the path is. But what I do know is actually it's not down there. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's the only
0: thing I know is it's not down there because I've been looking down there really carefully. So, okay. So I just kind of just checked my orientation. All right, just turn at twenty five degrees clockwise to the east, I think. And I'll go down that side. And I did. Sure, the path, the path wasn't going to be down there because I was still sure it was over there. But I thought I'd, I'll try it out. There was enough light from the moon to be able to get down the steep slope and 15 minutes later, there was the path. Whew, boy, was I relieved. But something about that process has stuck with me very deeply and it's why I, I really feel it like a useful thing to share. To step out of the familiar, we have to face our fear of the unknown. But once we do, all the possibilities of life open up. I was not lost on that hill or stuck on that hill and at risk of spending the night out and encountering some scary creatures because of any objective condition beyond my own certainty that I knew and my need to hold on to that certainty. When I was willing to face that fear And I'm sure if I was in a similar situation, I'd have to face it again. It's like you do it once and it's over. And just letting go. Actually, I don't know. I don't know here what is necessarily the true direction. But I do know where I am and I can explore. I can look. I can see. And in paying attention and exploring in that way, we come to find the path. Whenever we think we know where the path is, the very knowing and the fixating and the attaching to that and building that as our security, building that as our, as our home, so to speak, in that very process we lose contact with the path, which is an alive and dynamic relationship to experience in which we're seeking to find the balance in which we're seeking to neither lean into nor away from. To neither push too hard nor become passive in the face of what's happening. So in terms of your practice, in terms of what you're doing here, to have a larger context for it, to allow this process and this journey to open you, to stretch you beyond the safe and comfortable limitations that we so easily imprison ourselves in. And to see that in that opening up, in that going beyond the limitations we impose on our life and on ourselves in an attempt to create some sense of certainty or safety or security. That when we actually allow ourselves to expand beyond that, that what we discover is, is a vastness, is an openness, is a, a brightness in life that isn't located in any particularity, that isn't defined by any circumstance or condition, but that is nonetheless available when we allow ourselves to be open to and interested in this more than the security or the certainty or the familiarity we might otherwise, at times, pursue. So let's sit quietly for a minute or two together. Thank you for listening.